Coming up on Word Matters, the questions that have been on your mind. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. Each week, we ask listeners to send us any language-related questions that have been on their minds, and our listeners consistently come through with thought-provoking queries. I'll take the first one. We have a question from Doug Barrick, who writes, Regarding hot yoga and cold yoga, I wanted to provide an alternative view. I'm a sometimes practitioner of the former, and I was told once by my yogi, or maybe yogini, that the hot yoga tradition reflects yoga's roots in India, where it was hot. European and North American yoga in climate-controlled buildings came along later and was colder. So this is addressing whether or not hot yoga is a true retronym because hot yoga may be the first kind of yoga. Now, Doug's question reminds me of some correspondence that we got also about our retronym piece. There were a number of people who wrote to address the fact that film camera is a term that was used before digital cameras existed, that film camera was a term for a new kind of camera that was contrasted with the camera obscura and with the daguerreotype. So film camera also, in theory, is not a true retronym. But I think that, in truth, both hot yoga and film camera still qualify as retronyms simply because a retronym really exists in the eye or in the mouth or in the thinking of the beholder. So a retronym is coined to distinguish an older version of something from a new version. And I think that for most of the people who refer to hot yoga or refer to film cameras, they are contrasting it with something that is known, and it doesn't really matter that these terms had earlier reference. Well, I'm the person, I think, who made the remark during the original podcast about hot yoga and cold yoga. I remember seeing hot yoga advertised, and I wonder how it was different from what I was imagining to be regular yoga. I am not a practitioner of yoga. I did not really think it was making an allusion particularly to the history of yoga, or at least when it was being advertised. But of course, that was my lack of awareness about that. In my mind, If you are aware of hot yoga being a thing and aware of its distinctions from what other people called yoga, then if you use the term cold yoga, you would be using it as a retronym. You would be using it to make a conscientious distinction from this other thing called hot yoga. I think that's a really good point. A person can use something as a retronym, whether that term existed before. It's a retronym to the person who is using it. We're just really trying to be precise. If we say acoustic guitar or regular coffee, I bet most people are just simply identifying a category. They're not thinking that this term is actually altered in its meaning over the years. I think the big issue here that is brought up by the question is that most of us don't carry a dictionary around in our heads. (laughs) You know, there's no way to know. And there's no real important reason to know that, for example, hot yoga existed before yoga did. Because as Emily said, it's the intention is you're isolating you're identifying. And to do that, you have to discriminate. That You have to make this kind of yoga different from a different one, this kind of coffee different from another kind of coffee, for example. Yes. The crucial thing is to make sure that you are ordering regular coffee and not, God forbid, decaf. Next up, Amon Shea has another of your questions. 
Ela Hardin, and I apologize if I've mispronounced either of your names, wrote in to say, hello, word matters in your latest podcast. You mentioned hello being used as an exclamation as well as being used on the phone when the caller didn't know the class of the person they were calling. Can you go into more detail on this? And she says she would love to hear more about it. And we can kind of place the blame for hello in a very specific place, and that is we can blame the the telephone book. And the first telephone book that was ever published, which was not technically a book because it was only a single sheet of paper and it had 50 <laughs> names on it with no numbers because when they first started <laughs> using the telephone, they didn't have numbers, of course. You just rang up the operator and told him who you wanted to speak to. And what municipality? This was in Connecticut. It was in New Haven, and it was published by the District Telephone Company of New Haven. <laughs> this is 1878. So it's not technically a book, but it did have information, had the list of subscribers, and it also had instructions on how to begin their conversations. And it said you should begin your conversation with a firm and cheery hello H-U-L-L-O-A. <laughs> Ah. which was a curious spelling. So that's kind of the forerunner of the, What year? Uh, this was in 1878. And then phone books take over. You know, they, like, everybody and their brother and their sister has a phone book soon enough because everybody starts getting a telephone. So the phone started initiating all these conversations between people who needed a way of addressing each other. And Thomas Edison, one of the early phone giants, was in favor of saying hello. However, Alexander Graham Bell thought we should say ahoy. We all know who won this particular <laughs> There were battle. competing ideas. Right. It was either hello, there were the helloers and the ahoyers. And huh. with the, the sole exception of Montgomery Burns and the Simpsons, who still answers the telephone with ahoy, ahoy, <laughs> hello obviously won out. You know, the telephone was a really incredible change for a modern society in the, in the late 19th and the early 20th century. Suddenly you could talk to people that you could never speak to before, and it was mind-bending for a lot of people. And many people had trouble with this newfangled device. And so the early telephone books up through the beginning of the 20th century would give instructions on etiquette and things like that. And they would tell you, you know, you don't need to yell into the, the thing. People <laughs> can hear you and don't yell at the operators and don't say, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? They can hear you just fine. And a lot of the things, though, in the early phone books that they suggested didn't really stick around. One of the things they said is at the end of the conversation, you should end by saying, that is all. (laughs) So hello, before we use it in the telephone, it did have use, but it was more like something you would say to attract attention, like, hello, what do you think you're doing? Or express surprise. Right. Hello, what's that stuck to the bottom of my foot? (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. It wasn't so much a greeting. Ahoy was used as a greeting for at least 100 years prior to the advent of the telephone, but it was chiefly a a nautical greeting. Ahoy makes a lot more sense. It really does, because it does have this history as a greeting. And hello or hello in old literature, you find it where people are surprised by something. It sort of fills the place where, what is this? Right. Hello, what is that noise? Or something like that you would hear. Hello, what have we here? You kind of think people were like surprised by the phone ringing and they pick it up off the wall. They're like, hello, what is this? Who is trying to get a hold of me? That's plausible. And then sort of semantic drift to move it over. Oh, it means a greeting as opposed to expresses surprise. The thing about the story that I like the most is that Bell was so firm in his belief that we should still say ahoy that he insisted on answering the phone with ahoy for the rest of his life. (laughs) I think he was allowed, right? I mean, he was Alexander Graham Bell. So however he wanted to answer the phone. Ela has also asked where hey and hi come from and if they originated from hello. Hey dates back to the 13th century. It, It obviously predates hello. 
a lot of these things, they're not things that often show up in prose. In print, the point being, dictionaries depend on the evidence of written text. It's an interesting blind spot, which is to say utterances of people made between themselves that weren't written down. Although we do have, in Shakespeare's plays, he uses hallow and helloa, H-A-L-L-O and H-A-L-L-O-A. And certainly in lots of literature, there are greetings, there's dialogue where people are greeting one another. Exactly. Dialogue becomes the rich source of of evidence. I remember at a recent conference, there was a woman, an academic from Canada, and she used this, this enormous corpus of 17th and 18th century plays to show how people spoke and shifting register based on their social status. And because we don't really have a lot of replicated natural dialogue from that period, it makes perfect sense to use theater as a way of seeing how people spoke. That's as close as we can get to a recording of people speaking natural speech. And one thing that comes to mind in Shakespeare is just to learn how thee and thou were used as opposed to you. And notice that the royals in the kingly plays refer to others as thee and thou, but they are referred to as you. And I think that's kind of interesting. It's a way to learn that lost distinction. That is all. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll be back after the break with another of your questions. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Neil Servin. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for the Word of the Day, a brief look at the definition and history of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. We get some wicked good questions from our listeners. Here's Neil Servin with our next one. A listener named Alan writes that he is curious about words that become associated with a particular region. And Alan is thinking in particular about the word wicked. It's used as an adverb in New England. He cites L.L. Bean, the outdoor company, advertises something called wicked good slippers. In this usage, Alan notes, it means extremely, extremely good slippers. He asks, is this more recent than its more common meaning of evil or fierce? And how prevalent does this sort of usage need to be to get in the dictionary as a definition? Well, first of all, I want to say that Alan has lobbed me one that's right in my wheelhouse because (laughs) this is a word that was very common to my vocabulary growing up because I grew up in New England. I grew up north of Boston. I used wicked as an adverb all the time. That was a wicked cool show I saw. That was a wicked hard test that teacher just gave us. (laughs) Wicked uh, smart. Wicked smart. (laughs) And uh, so this is very common to me. And it's 
something I grew up using all the time. And I think there's even an added wrinkle in that Alan sort of notes when he cites the wicked good slippers is that this is a term that has actually become kind of a signifier of New England parlance. When you use it, you're trying to identify yourself as someone who lives in New England or is associated with New England a lot. There's wicked good slippers in the movie Goodwill Hunting, which is set at MIT. One of the character's friends talking about Matt Damon's character says, my boy's wicked smart. It's not only just a signifier of where he's growing up, it's a signifier of the kind of friends he has, the ones that are not using academic speak around him. They're just kind of talking as they talk. This local is, dialect, sort of town and gown. A local dialect. Yeah. And this use is very common. It is actually entered in our dictionary. He asks, is it more recent than the common meaning of evil or fears? It absolutely is. The date we show is 1980, which might be an indicator of how much this was used in spoken language before it was ever written down. That date of 1980 is the evidence of first usage in print that we can identify. When we are dating words, as we say, when we show a date of first use, it is the first use of printed evidence. So that means that the word could have been used in spoken language for substantially longer than that before we actually found that first documented evidence. We know that it was. We can speak with great confidence that any slang or informal term was used in speech before it was used in writing. And it also sure, could easily absolutely. mean that it was used for up to several decades or even hundreds of years in print, and we just haven't found it yet. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and the Oxford English Dictionary gives an interesting angle with the sort of amelioration of this word, meaning in informal English, excellent or splendid F. Scott Fitzgerald in 1920 saying in dialogue, Phoebe and I are going to shake a wicked calf, which means we're going to dance in an excellent manner. Again, just to show this, I think what linguists call amelioration, the word that went from having a, a negative connotation or denotation to a positive one, that had happened and the Oxford English Dictionary identifies that as an American phenomenon. And that particular use, the Fitzgerald use, that's adjectival, not right. adverbial. Right, it's not adverbial, right. Yep. In this case, one of the theories behind this word, and maybe a pretty good theory, when you think that wicked being associated with New England, New England is also home of the Salem witch trials. And so when you <laughs> right. associate wicked, you think of like fairy tales, you think of evil as stepmothers and witches and curses and all that. So to then have that word associated with that locality then be used in this sort of kind of show-offy way, kind of way that is meant to be for something impressive – it's almost as though you're using this reference to curse the way we use swear words sometimes, but maybe not quite as a swear. We're kind of co-opting this word that we associate with evil to then use for something impressive. We do the same thing with bad. We do. Alan kind of touches upon a broader question, which is about regional uses. And wicked is definitely associated with New England so much that when it's used adverbially outside of New England, it almost gets noticed as something that any New Englander might not think is even correct. When you go around New England, you see things advertised as being wicked awesome. There's a network of news publications called Wicked Local associated with each town. In Salem, there's actually a bookstore called Wicked Good Books. Obviously that they're making this coy allusion to this association of wicked with New England. And so you think of other uses that might be so pinned to a location. There aren't many, but one that comes up is Hella 
which we associate with the West Coast in the same way. It's adverbial. It means very or extremely. That it's actually adverbial and adjectival. It's associated specifically with Northern California. So there's uh-huh. a divide in the state of California about where you say hella and where you don't, or okay. there used to be anyway. I think that hella is a really interesting word to compare to wicked. Hella is thought to be a kind of truncation of the phrase hell of a, right? Yeah. But it started out as an adverb, and then it gained this adjectival use also, although in speech it may be the other way around, but as far as what written evidence is available. But we didn't enter hella until 2015. Current evidence dates the adverb to 1987 and the adjective to 1991. I only know this because it happens to be one of the words I defined. So that's a long time to go between starting to collect evidence And I think the earliest evidence that we collected when we were kind of monitoring this term was not those earliest most dates, right? We have people on staff whose job it is to find, to go and seek out the earliest date of print evidence of a particular word. But we are collecting evidence all the time. And so the earliest evidence that we had collected on our own, I think, was from 1996 or so, maybe 1994. Mm -hmm. So that's when we started noticing, when editors at Merriam-Webster started noticing Hella was in the mid-90s. And it didn't get in until 2015. And the reason for that is that it's a regionalism. Same thing with Wicked, right? We don't enter regionalisms as soon as they come on our radar. We enter regionalisms when they have settled into the language more broadly. I will say the first time I encountered the word hella and as a New Englander, I believe it didn't really occur until I started using more social media. And I started being connected to people who lived in California, who I might not have otherwise conversed with before social media became a thing. And they just use hella unselfconsciously in their language. And I'm like, what does this mean, hella? I could sort of get it just by the context, what, what was meant. But it just struck me as this word that how haven't I never seen this word before? And oh, it's like, oh, you're using it the exact same way I use wicked. Can something be hella wicked? Only if I you live in the Midwest. It, it sort of averages out right. around Missouri. <laughs> Here's Peter Sokolowski with our final question. We have a note from Mark Robinson, who says, I'm helping my daughter with second grade, and I mentioned that when you have 12 things, that's also called a dozen. Being a child, she, of course, asked why, and I realized I don't know. So what's so special about the number 12 that it gets another name? Are there other numbers with special names that I'm not aware of? This is kind of a great question. And it is interesting that for English speakers, there's something kind of magical about the number 12, which seems arbitrary. Although we do have things like a dozen eggs as a kind of fixed quantity for some commerce. But the fact is, lexically, the reason we have this word is because of French. It came in from French. In French, it's not a word so much as it's a pattern. So that ending, the N, the, the E-N in English, which it would be a I-N or A-I-N-E, if it were in feminine form, is an ending that sort of means about or around. So you can say, for example, with a dozen, the French word for 12 is douze, and you just say douzain or douzaine, and that means about 12. But you can do that with any number. So 10 is the number dix, spelled D-I-X, and so you can say une dizaine, and that means about 10. Or you can say the number 100 is cent, C-E-N-T, You could say une centaine, and that means about a hundred. It is funny. Sometimes someone will say something like about eight, and they'll say une huitaine. And I would think, well, why would you say about eight? Just say something more rounded. But in fact, they have this ending. 
there's a coincidence in that we did borrow another one of these words, which is the word for about 40, which is in French, quarantaine, which came into English as quarantine. And because they came in at different moments, so dozen came in after the Norman Conquest, 13th century, and quarantine came in later, they therefore don't look like they have the same form. But in fact, they came from the same pattern of French words that do this. And it's just interesting to me that English borrowed a couple of the points on the sort of arc, on the rainbow of numbers, but not the whole system of using this sort of generalized suffix. Well, and we borrowed a word for it that means kind of an imprecise about 12 to name exactly 12. Well, yeah, but we do use it both ways, right? I started about a dozen years ago. You can use a dozen, I think, in a way that just means a largish number, but less than 20. But most of the time, yeah. an English speaker would do what you just did right now and say yeah, about right. a dozen years ago. And we yeah. do use it imprecisely when we say dozens and dozens of... Right. So that means sort of indefinitely large. It's an interesting point that Mark makes is that we talk about 12 as having this significance when we live in this society that uses the base 10 system. Why does 12 have a significance that we don't actually give to 10 in terms of dealing with eggs and Except for inches. Donuts? You're right. I mean, the base 10 sort of idea for counting, except for that weird English system for weights and measures. It's well, so my guess is that 12 is divisible by both 3 and 4. And so it might make it more useful and utilitarian than 10. That is my guess for why 12 has this significance and then has this number of approximation that, that we then attach to it in dozen. Because if you buy 12 eggs, you can divide them between your family, whether you have three children or four children. But if you exactly. buy 10 eggs and, and you have three children... You're out of luck. And someone's fighting for that fourth egg. There is also another number word we have in English, which is both precise and imprecise, which is couple. And oh, yeah, In yeah, a yeah. lot of contexts, <laughs> couple will very specifically mean two. But if you ask somebody who's come in wildly inebriated, how many beers did you have? Oftentimes they say, I just had a couple. A couple. And depending right. on the context, couple can have anywhere between three and 84. Now, I didn't learn the use of the word couple to mean very specifically two until I moved to New England. I grew up in Pittsburgh. And I moved to New England and I was working in an ice cream shop. And somebody came in and ordered a couple black and white sodas. A black and white soda is vanilla ice cream in a chocolate soda. So I was like, okay, sure, I'll make you a couple. How many do you want? And they're like, I want a couple. And I realized, like, oh, they mean exactly two. Once it was clear that this person was referring to a particular number, I knew that the number was two. But I had always used, and I had only ever noticed other people using couple to mean, you know, two, three, maybe as many as four. I understood it as a very imprecise number, exactly synonymous with few. But less than it's several. It's strange because, I mean, don't you think in terms of romantic couples would be exactly two, right? Kind of make that firm association of two with that term then. So then it's interesting that you don't actually project that then to two to other things when you hear a couple of as a quantity. Now, when I say couple, I, I am thinking of two almost always. And I'll say yeah. few if I mean more than two. Mark is asking, are there other words that are pinned to a certain number, like dozen is associated with 12? The one that comes to my mind is score. Oh, right. For 20, Abraham Lincoln used it most famously in the Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago. He was speaking in 1863 and meaning 87 years ago, four times 20 at seven, and then you get to 1776. And so he was doing math right there on the field. But in terms of other numbers, there's brace, which also oh, means yeah. two and usually is, refers to a pair of animals together. 
gross is a term that means oh, a yeah. dozen dozen, a dozen, for, dozen for shipping quantities and things like that. There's also pleiad, yeah. which means seven, and that refers to the Pleiades. The Pleiades were the daughters of Atlas and Pleione, who changed into the seven stars that are found in the constellation Taurus. I don't think they changed but intentionally. I think they actually were changed. The they were sisters. changed. <laughs> they were changed into the stars. Yes, they didn't decide to become stars. But because of that, we sometimes use Pleiad to mean any group of seven. Well, another one is Ennead, which refers to a group of nine, comes from that same mythological origin. I could have sworn you said Ennead, and you were going to say that meant any number. And I was going to say, that sounds <laughs> not so literary at all. Ennead spelled E-N-N-E-A-D, oh. from the Greek word for nine, I believe. And getting back to dozen, the idea of a baker's dozen, uh, I see in the Oxford English Dictionary, goes back to around 1600. And one of my favorite historical lexicographers, John Florio, friend to Shakespeare, translator of Montaigne, he used the term baker's dozen in definition. He said baker's dozen, that is 13 to the dozen. The note given, apparently so-called after the former practice among bakers, of including a 13th loaf when selling a dozen to a retailer, the extra loaf representing the retailer's profit. Finally, we should mention, if I didn't, that quarantine refers to 40, the 40 days that a crew on a ship would remain on the ship in port and not coming onto land in order to ensure that any illness on board was identified. Peter, did the word quarantine ever have use referring just to a quantity of 40? Oh, yeah, yeah, 40 days and 40 nights. It's a complicated story because the idea that we have today of waiting for the purposes of keeping disease either from a population or from yourself comes from the Italian word quarantena, which came during the plague of the 14th century. That sense existed in Italian, but English had borrowed quarantine from French as a period of 40 days in the biblical sense. So we had these two competing Romance language terms that merged. After the plague, the Italian word came into English. It blended with the existing French form which is why when we say quarantine today, we usually mean a period of waiting for purposes of disease rather than simply a generic period of 40 days, which is how it entered the language, in fact. Thank you to all who have written to us. If you have a question or a comment, email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey and Adam Maid. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.